Hello and welcome to What's the Use, your source for key insights on real estate development, commercial real estate, and market dynamics. I'm your host, Jonathan Newman, and today we have the pleasure of speaking with Jim Hyde. Jim is the founder of Craft DNA, his development firm, and has a co-working space in Healdsburg, Craftworks, that shows his innovation in grassroots and craft development. He is the author of the ULI-published book, Building Small. He is also the creator of the Small Scale Developer Forum, whose purpose is to provide a supportive network and education for developers working with small-scale, incremental, and transformative development projects. And the next forum will be November 5th through 7th in Savannah, Georgia. You can find links to that as well as Jim's website in the description below. Jim is trained as a landscape architect and got his MRED from MIT. And that was probably one of the first MRED programs, wasn't it, Jim? It was the second, actually. It, it started after Columbia. Yeah. Excellent. And can you tell me a bit about that program and kind of how um, it gave you some extra tools to really do what you're doing today? Yeah, it, I mean, it was a great program. I was trained as a designer, so I spent a lot of time kind of vacillating whether I wanted to go for business or go for more design. Ended up deciding I wanted to go for the business. Uh, really was fascinated and challenged by development and um, what was happening. So I thought it would give me more tools, and it, and it really did. I mean, I think the design profession back when I was in school, and a lot of ways even today, still does not pay enough attention to the what you might call the gravity of finance and some of the realities that you have to really understand. You may not like them, and you may want to try and change them, and that's great. We need people to do that. But if you don't understand how it works, um, it, you're really handicapped as a designer to try and make the kinds of impacts that we would like to make. And so for me, it was, you know, it was like learning a foreign language. It, it really opened up my eyes as to what uh, many of my clients really, <clears throat> all the challenges they were working with and facing. And I think gave me a, a better toolbox to be able to communicate with them, um, both the value of good design that they may be underappreciating, but also for me to be more empathetic about the multiple things that they had to juggle in order to make the project succeed. So, Got it. And coming out of that MRED program, what kind of clients were you working with you know, beforehand? And did you envision yourself working with during the MRED program and then afterwards? Because I know that you're very focused on small-scale development and, you know, kind of grassroots building within the community to, to understand that value. So I'd love to learn more about how the MRED program propelled you to be able to do that. And that's a, that's a very interesting um, insight. And I had never really thought about it like that. But, um, you know, prior to that, I was doing what you might consider traditional landscape architecture, construction documents, planning documents, big ideas. Uh, I did find myself, and one of the reasons I went for the business degree, uh, seemed to have a good way of working with clients, understanding their issues, managing, communicating, uh, organizing the team towards some kind of a you know, conclusion. And um, so coming out, I found myself doing less just project-specific design and more strategic uh, work around tough 
problems of the built environment that usually was trying to leverage real estate development as the vehicle to make the change. Uh, so one of the big projects I got coming out was um, in Columbus, Ohio, where uh, the Ohio State University had stepped in and was buying up large pieces of the adjoining neighborhood because they finally acknowledged that they cannot just ignore their neighborhood and let it, you know, kind of run the gamut of disinvested landlords and people who really didn't care and put up as many students as they can in the housing. And so they, through their foundation, they started to take a really a very impact investment kind of strategy, buying up a lot of the distressed property and my role was kind of orchestrating and managing this team that was dealing not only with physical form, but things like, how do you get the streets swept? You know, when you got more cars on there than you ever can. And, and how do you deal with what had been a dumping ground for Section 8 housing in the neighborhood? So these things that were really these complicated, thorny uh, built environment slash social slash real estate problems. And then uh, the master plan that we did, you know, actually got a lot of it got implemented. Uh, it's a very successful kind of turnaround of the neighborhood. And it was using the power of real estate as the way to make, create change, you know, without it being a single project. So anyway, so those are the kind of things I was doing. And, and I was doing a lot of big projects overseas, a lot of stuff in China. Everybody was working in China at that time, but really found, I think, a personal passion and excitement when I would go to the cool little places in whatever city I was in. And so while, you know, the, the paycheck and the projects were big, the soul searching and kind of the sense of inspiration and excitement really came from stuff that was small. And so I found myself more and more. And in the other piece of that was I was still doing a lot of consulting and I really wanted to get my hands dirty and do some projects. And it's hard to, you know, you're not going to start with a 200 unit apartment. You're going to start with something small. So I started doing smaller projects and really found that it just, you know, it was very, very gratifying, very fulfilling, maddening, you know, difficult, challenging. But when it was all done, I loved the, you know, the crafted nature of a small project, hence, you know, the name of my company, Craft DNA. So it's amazing that the MRED program gave you those tools to be able to work on transformative real estate. And that's kind of what I want to talk with you about today. Uh, I'm sure our viewers are very interested to find out about how they can see an opportunity where most people would see a dilapidated building yeah. or a neighborhood that uh, hasn't changed over the past 10, 20 years to transform that neighborhood. And it sounds like that's uh, some of the work that you were doing in Ohio. And so I'm interested to hear going from that kind of large master plan development to a uh, being more focused on small scale how does uh, transforming a neighborhood fit into those two? Because I feel like sometimes in order to really transform a neighborhood, there needs to be this holistic approach. But then also those people that live in that neighborhood and the people that come into the neighborhood and invest in the neighborhood are going to be the ones that make the difference. So how do those two kind of ideas fit together when you're looking for opportunities to transform some real estate? Well, it's a great observation. And I think in some ways it is the tension that lies between um, the notion of small and the notion of big. And uh, I think for years, the real estate industry and you know, for, for 
for better and for worse and for practical and for maybe lack of tenacity, the solution to disinvested neighborhoods is, oh, we need to come in and we need to buy up four blocks and we need to bring in the formula, you know, ground floor podium with three or four floors over it. And we'll put in some retail that, you know, we'll find the, you know, we'll hire the name that broker who will bring in the credit tenant and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so all these neighborhoods start to look like all the other neighborhoods and you do lose as, as my friend Liz Dunn says, kind of the soul of the places. So the alternative approach is this incremental small scale grassroots. And it's, it means that the transformation doesn't occur overnight, but I think it also means the transformation is enduring uh, and it is organic. So, I mean, we've all seen these big mega projects that open up with great fanfare and they cut the ribbon and they talk about how many jobs are created and 10 years on, they look awful. They look like they don't belong. The, you know, it's, it's a whole different um, group of people than were there originally and the authenticity and the sense of place that either made it interesting or was it the essence of the place that's been lost and it's been replaced with this kind of homogenous, you know, formulaic thing that's been brought in from everywhere else. So the small approach is, you know, people like so many of the people that are involved in the small scale developer forum who are working, you know, one building at a time. And, and the, the, as I talk about in the book, I think the real power of this smaller incremental approach, yes, it's harder. Yes, it takes longer. Yes, it's more difficult to finance. But what it means is you do one or two surgical strikes. But somebody in one of our forums once called urban acupuncture, which I love, you do one or two surgical strikes. And it creates a bit of a flywheel effect. And, and a couple of things happen. One is the neighborhood now doesn't feel like they've lost two blocks to some soulless homogenous thing that's been imported from, you know, whatever that developer does as their bread and butter. But you have this little gem that's been created that people feel some authorship of. And then they see the opportunity in another building. And, and you may find there's one or two things that you did brilliantly and one or two things that didn't really work. So you can adjust and you can pivot on the next five or 10,000 square feet. You haven't bet, you know, a hundred million dollars on a hundred thousand square feet and then find that you got it wrong. You can always adjust. And so, uh, and then the neighborhood, I think has a sense of authorship and hence ownership. And then, uh, commitment to making sure it succeeds and goes from there. And so um, I think there's just a lot of value that comes out of the smaller approach to moving into disinvested places. Um, you, you touched on something about, so how do you like find a site or how do you, you know, how do you make this work? Um, I think a common thread again, and I, I'll talk a lot probably during our conversation today, uh, referencing the people I've gotten to know through the 11 years that I've been doing the small scale developer forum. Cause we have a cohort of about 50 that have been with me for pretty much the whole 11 years. And so watching their journeys and career paths and projects, I think is a good proxy for, you know, how this stuff works across the country and across the transect. And I think there is something that captures people's imaginations about these neighborhoods. Uh, and they find an interesting building. We always talk about finding a site or a building and then figuring out the program that belongs there, as opposed to the traditional real estate development approach, which is find me two acres. We've got this template. We're going to bring it in. All so this is like, yeah, there's this really cool building that holds an important corner in this neighborhood. And if it just could be, 
you know, brought back to life, it would do so much for the public realm and so much for the sense of place. And so what would really make that work? And so that's, I think, the very different approach that goes on here between the smaller uh, entrepreneurial developers and the formula delivering. So location is so incredibly important for a community, right? Because as you said, you might have these historic buildings in a central location. And back in the Roman times, you know, you had the forum and then that's where everyone would gather. And it kind of was like the beating heart of the community. So you're saying for small scale development, it's really important to be in touch with kind of where people gather, where where those places are going to be. And that might be one of the most important things or... Well, I, I'd say it a little bit differently. I'd, I'd say that it is being able to, uh, you know, divine, if you will, like the, the, the water guys, um, divine a hidden asset within the fabric of the community and then be able to recognize you can create all of the things that you've just mentioned by bringing that building back to life. Because if you try to go to those areas that already are where everybody gathers, you're priced out. But if you go to the neighborhood where the, you know, the intersection density is really good and the building fabric is very interesting and the, the, the bay depth and the ceiling, the ceiling heights, and the ground floor work really well. And there's some great old trees or there's an interesting park or there's transit nearby um, being able to cast forward and say, you know, if I could unlock the potential of this neighbor, this has everything that. You know, name name that four letter acronym neighborhood that you know everybody goes to that's so hip and cool. This has all of those same attributes and more. It's just nobody's invested in here. So let me figure out how to unlock that potential and which building allows me to start uh, that first. But being on the forefront of that new move and taking this risk based on instinct sounds to me like it's pretty much every single time this is something that someone hasn't done before, right? You're coming in there and and it's a completely new concept every time. So how do you de-risk these potential development sites and whatnot? Yeah, no, you're you're absolutely right. I mean, it is it is very much a pioneering move. And uh, I remember um, and it's and it's going to places where again the institutional investors can't won't go or can't go. Marge Caffarelli, who spoke at one of the forums very early on in the run, um, said, you know, I'm an investment committee of one, so I can decide where I want to go. And if I feel that is a great spot, I'm going to you know, pull the trigger versus trying to go back and explain it to a bunch of guys in the, you know, the boardroom and how this is going to work. So there's that initial hurdle and asset that comes from develop, being a small developer is you're more agile. You're definitely pioneering and you're definitely taking on a higher level of risk. The, um, in the risk is, I mean, the risk is there. I think the bigger question is how do you not so much de-risk it, but how do you um, prove to yourself that there is something there that will work? And more importantly, how do you prove to your investors and uh, your lenders that there's something? Because, you know, we all know the challenges of comps. And if we all just went on something that succeeded before, it's like, well, then how are we ever going to create anything new? So, um, you know, Patrick Kennedy from the Bay Area here talks about guerrilla marketing. And I remember one of his early presentations was like, you can't hire the and again, name that firm that does the market analysis. You got to go out you got to walk the street. You got to talk to people in the shops and you got to go into the coffee shops and go into the bars and say like, you know, where are you from? And what are you looking for in this neighborhood? And what do you, and, and it really is getting to know uh, the hidden assets of the community 
um, that just do not show up when you do the, you know, the GIS, uh, whatever, whatever, uh, statistical analysis that everybody uses to try and identify, you know, where the next opportunities are. That's, yeah. Like based on demographics and whatnot. So are yeah. you saying a key way to find these transitioning neighborhoods and define what are areas of opportunity are literally speaking with the people that live there and understanding what their needs are. But then how would you find whether there, there's going to be growth there? Or you're saying the development that you do will attract the growth. Well, yeah, not not to not to pull a uh, field of dreams here, you know, build it, they will come. But I think yeah. the other thing that is endemic to small scale development, it is hyper local. So, again, all the people that are in the forums are working in places that they know and have been for 20 years and they've watched the changes and they've seen the opportunities and seen the movement of the market. I couldn't pick up what I've done here in Healdsburg and move to, you know, somewhere in Ohio and expect to start tomorrow. So I think it is both why small scale development is so much better for communities as one path for certain kinds of development. It's also why it's so challenging and unreplicable for people who go into the field, because it's not like I'm going to develop a formula and now take this to 15 other cities, which if I'm a, you know, an apartment developer or warehouse developer or something like that, that's, that's the whole goal. You develop something that you can replicate more efficiently. Here, we're creating places that are based on the DNA of where we live and what we understand about the psychographics and demographic of that community and creating opportunities for ourselves. Um, so, Yeah. And through being authentic to that community and the people living there, can you talk a bit about how that creates a more resilient product at the end of the day? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's such a, a desire for authenticity, and as soon as something, it, it's the challenge is the great little high streets or you know main streets to see that have the retail that have all the cool indie stores, and then it becomes so cool that all the uh, you know all the chains come in because they can pay more rent than the guy who's got the you know the really cool vinyl record store. So it's it's one of the challenges that goes along with creating place. Um, the other thing back to this yin and yang of, of small pioneering and then big um, riding the coattails. And we hear this a lot from our developers in the cohort there. You know, they put their blood, sweat and tears into creating something special that is kind of the, the gem or the, the catalyst for the rebirth of the neighborhood. And then uh, the bigger institutional players have the money to come in and buy up everything around it and ride off of the value that they've created. So one of the, you know, for anybody that's out there listening, you know, one of the great both opportunities and challenges that we're looking for is how do you pair big and small. So the creativity, the crafting, that insight, that pioneering entrepreneur skill of a small developer can be used to unlock the potential of a neighborhood. But how can a bigger developer pair with them so that you know you're, you're optioning everything around it and being able to harvest the value that you've created through your, again, your, your blood, sweat and tears um, from the beginning. So yeah. And do you think the project that we were speaking about last time we talked, the Chop House Row, uh, the adaptive reuse of that industrial facility. Did that fit into some of the larger developments in that neighborhood? Because uh, I know it really revitalized the area in a big way. 
Yeah, it, it's a great, it's, you know, there's a lot of good lessons out of that. I mean, it is both big and small. So you have this little gem, which is Chop House Row, which was this little auto shop that became, um, you know, it's the third place. It's the, it's the Agora. It's the place where people want to go and be seen. And when Liz Dunn put that together, it was a little bit of a, I mean, it was both an experiential branding and you know visible branding for what was residential apartments and offices that she would be building which are newer buildings right next door or on top of it so it's this again a great pairing of a small creating the value the identity the attractiveness and you know i, I want to live in an apartment where i can walk down to chop house row and have a quick bite and and but the apartments you know were i mean well done but they're still very much of the bigger the bigger formula so i think that that's it's a good example of how these these are not mutually exclusive. They're actually, uh, I think, uh, benefit beneficial to one another if they're done properly. Um, and that really was, as you said, very much a catalyst and the, the project that unlocked uh, the uh, the potential of a capital neighborhood. There are a lot of things that follow that, and the other one that she did, which was Melrose Market, which was also pretty spectacular. So. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating how uh, something so small can make such a big difference, right. you know, and uh, definitely that's that's at the heart of the work that you're doing and, and really exciting for, you know, people getting into real estate development who know that, hey, I can't do this large scale development. I don't have the experience and whatnot, but to be able to, you know, start small and then maybe work next door to a building that already worked with with a concept to better understand a neighborhood. So tell me, what are some of the benefits of building small aside from the benefits of real estate in general? I know, you know, we have 1031 exchanges, we have stepped up basis at death, we have all sorts of tax benefits and whatnot in real estate. But how how can building small and and the work uh, that goes into that differ from maybe some of the more traditional benefits of real estate in your vision? Well, I, you know, start at kind of the macro level. And I think what we see, again, is I've gone around the country and you know, toward projects, talk to developers stuff. There's a there's an inseparable relationship between small locally owned businesses and the small developers who actually build the the vessels or the real estate that houses these. Because again, if you're building new, if you're institutional, it's very difficult for you to take on the risk of an unproven tenant. Um, and you're going to go with the credit tenant because it's just you know, again that's that's gravity. Um, but the small developers are. Uh, they're living in an ecosystem where they're entrepreneurs themselves. They're looking to do something different and they want to brand their building with the, you know, the cool bike shop slash coffee shop or the really great restaurant. And so, and, and what we see a lot of times is the developer is actually going into business with the tenant because guy that has the great coffee shop, bike shop might be brilliant at both, but not very good business person or doesn't have the capital to get started. So we see a lot of these very interesting collaborations and it, it gets to this idea of real estate as the means to the end, as opposed to the end itself. So not an agnostic income stream, but it's something that has a real purpose in the community uh, from the way that the community lives, the way it feels, the way it acts, the way it looks. But at the same time, it is producing um, economic benefits to 
the community at large, but also to me as, as the individual developer. And the other thing, I mean, all the, all the benefits that you mentioned are, you know, they, they, they translate into small as well as they do big. But the other thing is we typically see most people developing small are long-term hold um, in their attitude. So it's not a fix and flip. It's not a stabilize and sell it out to an institutional investor. They're in it for the long hauls because sometimes you have to fiddle with the dials for five years before you get the, the bike shop, coffee shop, you know, local bar, up and coming chef formula to actually work really well and drive the premium on the residential or something like that. And again, that's not for the faint of heart and that's not the way most uh, funded uh, investors like to work. They want to be out in three years or five years. So there's a long-term hold attitude, which then uh, if you go back to the, you know, the early work that Chris Leinberger did, um, the IRR is different, but if you're a long, if you're about long-term revenue, the premiums that you create are vastly better than if you just did the formula project and just continued to roll it forward. So you're really about creating long-term revenue that has a significant premium to it after you've gotten all of those pieces to work uh, together. And why is that premium so much higher than a larger development? Well, it's, uh, you know, in, in the ULI speak, it's the place dividend. I mean, the, these, yeah. small, these smaller projects that are handcrafted, that are curated and carefully uh, executed and managed and dialed in um, create significant sense of place and authenticity. And, you know, we're in an era where people are willing to pay for that. That's definitely something you can't put a uh, price tag on, you know? <laughs> You, you can't. And that's you know, and that's why it's so maddening a lot of times, because the guys that underwrite this stuff say, well, you know, if you had a if you have granite in the lobby, I can give you, a, you know, a 20 cents per square foot premium. But it's like, well, we're going to create like an unmatched kind of place. And I'm like, well, how do I value that? So um, it, it's, you know, it's very, very difficult, but the people that do it and do it well have proven it. And then you eventually end up creating uh, a replicable proven, I wouldn't say that you necessarily can demonstrate it quantitatively, but you get investors that A, first of all, believe in what you're doing and then B, see that you can execute and actually create long-term value. And then they're in. So it's a, you know, it's, but it's a long, it takes a long time. Yeah. And being in the UC Berkeley MRED program this past cohort, we had the pleasure of speaking with you and visiting you in Healdsburg and also having the uh, principal at Gorilla Development come and present uh, yeah. his, his different projects. And it seems to me that design plays such a central role in these small scale developments because it's just something that you can't put a price tag on, something that completely makes a neighborhood what it is. And I wanted to ask you, when designing these small-scale uh, developments and thinking about them for a long-term hold or an indefinite hold, how important is it to include adaptability? potentially in use. Yeah. You know, adaptability, we use the term future proofing a lot. And I think it's, um, I think from a functional standpoint, because sometimes you do have to pivot that concept you had didn't work, um, is really, really important. But I think if, I think the people who again are involved in this, um, very interested and passionate about this, have a higher commitment as well to sustainability and efficient use of resources and all that. And a future-proof building is obviously going to have a lot of those qualities to it. So, and you, you mentioned Kevin Cavanaugh. I mean, I loved when we were up visiting him 
2017, the forum was up there and he was a big part of our program. And we went and looked at one of his first projects called The Ocean. And it was an old auto repair shop that he created four little incubator um, kitchens in. And, and what he said was, you know, if somebody doesn't, if it doesn't work for somebody, I can have a new tenant in there in 48 hours. But if you build a cheesecake factory and you double down on cheesecake factory and they don't make it, they can you know go bankrupt during the pandemic. Yeah, what are you gonna do with that big building? You know, it's gonna <laughs> sit there vacant for a long, long time. So that adaptability not only as uses change, but also reducing being able to deal very quickly with the churn that's inevitable as you try new concepts and some of them work and some of them don't. So yeah, and how does uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion fit into adaptability? I think there's a huge nexus with DEI and small. And I think adaptability is, is a part of that. But I think that nexus is extremely is, is, is pronounced within small because what we see, the people, the people that write me, the people that are coming to our forums, the people that are participating in the Building Small platform, um, they're interested in their communities. And so, whereas a lot of industry money is going to train developers how to do the institutional approach, because they think these people want to be executive vice presidents at name that read. What we're seeing is a lot of people are like, no, I, I grew up in this neighborhood and I want to make a positive difference and I'm going to do it incrementally. And so I think there's a very significant, um, uh, nexus between the passion, desires, the commitments, the social responsibility that you know developers of color, uh, women uh, feel for where they're working, and the alignment and ability to work and accomplish a lot of those goals using the methods of building small or at a smaller scale incremental approach. So, and you know, again, it's investing in neighborhoods, creating things that are future proofed and adaptable. So it's it's uh, you know cuts across all of those really well. While at ULI Dallas, I had the pleasure of sitting in on a presentation from Small Change, which is mm -hmm. a crowdfunding right. platform. Right. Uh, and they're trying to create equity in local communities, bringing the members of those communities to have a stake in ownership in new developments, uh, small scale developments, most of them. And so I'd love to get your thoughts on how that creates a more resilient community and how having investors that you don't need to return to uh, with an IRR, you know, five years down the road, but we're going to hold this long term and come in and grab a slice of pizza or whatever, yeah, you yeah. know, it is. How, how does that fit in everything? Yeah, it's great. And and I know Eve really well. She's actually been a big part of our program and she's done some, you know, just she's doing God's work by trying to break the uh, the back of the, you know, the typical funding model for small developers. But I, it's in a, you know, for years, I think I spent a lot of time and many of my colleagues spent a lot of time kind of beating the table, trying to get the banks and the institutional investors to get what we're all about. And suddenly, I think we finally realized that's not going to happen because they have certain respond fiduciary responsibilities they have to respond to and it's just not aligned with what we're talking about so the crowdfunding platform and and what eve's working on which came out of the 2008 jobs act really opens up the opportunity for people to as you said feel uh, both practically and, and financially invest in these projects but i think psychologically feel invested in these projects and sure. Um, you know, it creates the ambassadors that, like you said, say, oh, let's go over to so-and-so. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm an owner in this project. Yeah, let's, let's go over and get a piece of pizza from there. I think it also 
you know, a big part of the book um, when I wrote the book was trying to educate the person who is not a real estate developer, but has very strong opinions about what should go on in their community to understand how complicated the real estate process is and how much risk developers take. So I see small change in crowdfunding as a way for people to start to have a better sense of empathy and understanding of the risk reward relationship. And if I'm going to take on something that's pioneering in a neighborhood that's been disinvested, but I believe in it, um, I, it's okay to make some money at that. You know, this notion that, oh, you greedy developers, you should just be, you know, doing this for the good of the community. It's like, well, there's a lot of, when I sign that personal guarantee and I don't sleep for two years till it's paid off, uh, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of risk there. And I think having people at least start to get a little bit of that journey vicariously by being crowdfunded investors, I think is really, really helpful. Thank you so much for that, Jim. So we're going to get to the main question of the podcast here. What's the use? Okay. So the idea here is with small development, where does it fit in best? How does it make the most sense? I know we've been talking about this for 35 minutes thus far, but what I've gathered is when there's a high risk situation where you know something will work because you have a stake in the community, you understand the location intimately, but it's something that doesn't work for an institutional developer probably because of how that entire system has been organized for hundreds of years and whatnot, just disincentivizing people from uh, investing in communities where the money isn't flowing there already, right? right. Um, so is is that the, the use of small-scale development coming in there and understanding this this is going to work, but it's so high risk that it doesn't make sense to anyone but us here? on the ground level. Well, first of all, I love the title. It's great. It's a great kind of double entendre. Um, so what's the use? Yeah. And I think the, the, you know, the whole purpose of the conversation is to elevate, not to disparage big, but to elevate small. I think we've lost the understanding and we've lost the craft of building smaller projects. We've lost the appreciation for smaller projects. And all we're trying to do with this movement is elevate it so that when cities sit there with surplus land or they're looking at revitalizing neighborhoods, they don't say, oh, we need a master developer and we need to go through a 15-year planning process. And we need to prescribe every single outcome. Say, so, well, maybe we could do some experimental things and let's try some of these smaller incremental approaches and see what really takes. So I think the use of of small, what's the use of small is to try and um, get uh, the public civic leaders, public sector planning staff to understand there is an alternative approach that works in many cases and may in fact be a better use of public resources and give broader authorship that people can actually get excited about um, behind the revitalization or the, you know, the, the intensification of, you know, their neighborhoods and where they live. So, so you're saying, uh, less intensive restrictions for local people working within their communities, you know, as opposed to general planning. Well, yeah, I mean, that's a big, I mean, we've got to get over this thing of uh, prescribing every single possible outcome that's going to totally. happen in 10 years because the market, we've got to be willing to experiment. And the, 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 the fear of, or as I said in my TED talk, you know, we're so afraid of what might happen that we keep getting the same old thing that we don't really like. And it's like, we got to be willing to try some stuff. And, and the best example of that was the pandemic. I mean, where I lived, we did stuff that we've been debating about for 10 years, but suddenly 
the world was melting down, the biz- local businesses were cratering. And we did parklets and, you know, that had been literally on the city council for 10 years, got rid of parking, put in parklets and they were a huge success. And I was like, wow, we should have done that sooner. It's like, yes, we should have. But so I think we've got to get out of this um, frozen. Uh, we've got to know what the future is going to look like and be willing to experiment. And some things are going to work really well and some things are not, but we got to be okay with that. So. Yeah, and developing small is definitely going to be the forerunner that's going to best exemplify those opportunities and how things are moving. Well, you heard it here today, folks. We have Jim here. Thanks so much for coming on, and uh, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much, Jim. Well, great. Thank you, Jonathan. Well done. If anyone wants to reach out to Jim, uh, check out his website. I will put the link in the notes below for the podcast as well. So everyone can feel free to read Jim's book. 